Hello and welcome to Global Data Pod Research Wrap. I'm Nora Santivani and joining me today, I have Natasha Kaneva, JP Morgan's Head of Global Oil and Commodities Research, and Joe Lupton, Senior Global Economist. Thanks to both of you for joining. So in today's episode, we're going to be discussing the recent move up in oil prices and its implications for uh, global growth and inflation. Uh, so maybe uh, we want to start by just getting a very broad picture of where are we in terms of the oil price. Um, Natasha, do you want to start us off? Just give some context of what levels we're at, how much of a move we've seen and, and the kind of various oil product uh, prices and how much we've moved. Yes, you're absolutely correct. Oil prices have rallied about 30% since the start of July. Uh, at that time, we were trading at the lows of $72 per barrel. Uh, today, we're trading at about 94 And this is a 10-month high. Uh, but crucially, we do not consume crude. Yes, as, as consumers, we, we use diesel, gasoline, and jet fuel. And as was the case in 2022, oil product prices are leading the surge. As global fuel markets have continued to tighten, the, low, the stocks are very low. And the demand has been very strong in summer. Actually, we reached record demand. Uh, so the, in the U.S., the prompt physical gasoline price is up about 9% uh, since the start of July. Uh, today, we're sitting at about $3.86 uh, cents per gallon. This is about 15 cents above last year's levels. And this is a seasonal record. Um, compounding higher gasoline prices, uh, there is a simultaneous spike in diesel costs in the United States. Uh, so, for example, the national diesel prices hit $4.54 per gallon in the first week of September. Uh, this is up almost 20% from early July, but it's still $0.49 cents per gallon lower compared to last year's levels. Uh, jet fuel has risen the most, uh, with the price in the Gulf Coast soaring more than 40% since, since early July. Thanks, Natasha. So as you say, there's been a material move up about 30% from the middle of the year. But of course, it's worth then contrasting that with the peaks that we got up to to last year, last summer, we're still about 25% lower from those sort of levels that we've seen. So the context here is one in which um, last year's inflation spike has actually been unwinding over the course of the first half of the year. Um, and largely due to a big drag from energy uh, prices coming off. Uh, and uh, Joe, as you've been highlighting, that's been providing an important boost to a household purchasing power. So the key question here now is whether this recent move up in oil prices could now turn into a headwind that somehow amplify, amplifies the drags from the tightening in financial conditions and maybe even short circuits the expansion. So. Answering that is not so straightforward, right, Joe? How should we think about the relationship between growth and oil prices? Yeah, it is complicated. And, it, and it's funny because the question we always get is oil's up. What's it mean for your outlook? And I, I always give the same answer, which is it depends, right? And classic economist answer, right? Uh, I mean, if you were to just look at GDP growth, global GDP growth and oil prices, you'd actually say there's a positive correlation there. Uh, and there's a reason for this. And I would say there are kind of three important elements that you need to figure out when assessing oil price shocks. By far, the, the, the most important one of those three is you need to know the source of, of, of the shock. You know, clearly, if oil prices are moving up because the economy is super strong, like it was during the 2000s expansion, 
that's not something that short circuits the expansion since it's the expansion that's driving the oil prices to begin with. That's what you would call a demand shock. If you remember your Econ 101 and the demand curve is shifting out, prices go up, output goes up. Those two, that's a positive correlation there. Uh, it's the, what we're really worried about, and, and I'm sure this is at the heart of people's questions when they ask it, is thinking about a supply shock. And those are the events of, you know, the classic ones of 73, 79, and, and probably the late 80s, 1990. Uh, you had these, you know, pretty distinct supply shocks that drove growth downward. So understanding how much of the, of the oil price uh, shock is demand-driven and supply-driven is important. There are two other elements that are also important. I'd just say, you know, the, the timing matters here. If these things happen very quickly, then the transfer of income from kind of consumers of oil to producers of oil who have lower propensities to consume, you know, that very rapid transfer is going to do more damage, again, if it's a supply shock, uh, than if it moves slowly over time and people have time to adjust to the prices. So speed matters here as well. And then the third element I would say that's important to keep in mind is what's the, the, the backdrop in, in, in kind of central banks? What type of contributing factors do you have? In a world where prices are moving up, uh, and it is maybe more demand driven, then central banks may feel in, in compelled to raise rates and therefore kind of amplify uh, the, 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 the rise in uh, prices. Uh, on the other hand, in a world where maybe inflation expectations have become more anchored, central banks have become more inclined to look through these types of shocks, particularly if they feel like they're, they're more driven by uh, supply elements. So understanding the, the flexibility of central banks to either accommodate or, or reinforce uh, the impact of these oil price shocks is also important. So those kind of three elements are always what's in the back of my mind when I'm when I'm thinking about these types of shocks here. So I guess maybe it's important to maybe dig into that a little bit and understand maybe Natasha can help us out. Yeah, Natasha, as Joe says, we need to identify the cause of the oil price rise here. So maybe you could walk us through the drivers of, of the move higher since the middle of the year. To what extent is this move uh, the result of lower supply uh, as opposed to stronger demand? What's your assessment? Uh, yes, yeah, so if we look at our sensitivities at the moment, so 1 million barrels per day move uh, in the balances, yes, whether it's up or down, uh, equals about, uh, at the moment, about $10 in the price. So we estimate that uh, about $5 from this $15 move in the price was due to demand and uh, $10 was due to the tighter supply. So that's, you know, fits very, very nicely with, uh, with, with Joe's numbers as well. So demand has been at record levels this year, despite weaker economic growth, just because we had just so much pent up demand in the system. You know, China definitely was uh, the main part out of that equation. But again, outside of China, where we will have record demand growth this year, we have record demand in Africa, record demand in India, record demand in the Middle East. Uh, summer demand was again at record levels and will be uh, will be um, averaging record levels this year. So demand is not an issue at all, but that again was uh, was already priced in in all our numbers. You know, the biggest surprise, of course, was uh, the tightening campaign from the OPEC Plus Alliance, and not only in terms of the volumes, but in terms of the lengths. Yes, and the latest announcement is that they they would be extending this 1.3 million barrels per day cut all the way through the end of December. So we believe that the latest move up in the prices was uh, solely due to those factors. 
Yeah, and I suppose the you know the fear here is that the supply cuts are not finished and the price of oil could go even further from here. I mean, how likely is that sort of scenario? We've heard a number of $120 per barrel being thrown around here. I mean, what's your base case for the next couple of months, if you could give us some guidance on what to expect? Nora, yes, the animal spirits are rising, you know, this is clear. And so we're having, again, um, calls about $100 oil. We've heard, yes, the number as high as $120. Um, you see on Bloomberg, uh, you know, it's every other news, it's about uh, oil marching towards 100 So that's, you know, that's, you know, the, the, like you can absolutely see this, that the momentum is very, very strong. Uh, so for our numbers, uh, interestingly enough, even 90 doesn't pop up in our numbers. So the fair value for oil in September is at about $88. As you know, our target since, uh, uh, well, was, yes, our target has been $90 oil in September. And so we were still sitting on our code that, you know, after reaching our target for the price gains may be limited. So we believe actually the most bullish cues, both on the macro and the micro, Part of the balances for the market have been exhausted for now. So our year-end target remains at eighty-six dollars. So we're very uh, we acknowledge yes, that that pass to this target can take different shapes. We're not going to fight the momentum, um, but fundamentally we, we we're sticking with eighty-six dollars. What is the main reason for that? Is you know that's um, number one is that demand. Uh, Demand risks are shifting to the downside in our view. So with pump prices surging and seasonal travel peak now behind us, we believe that the greater share of the demand in the fourth quarter, and especially so in 2024, will be concentrated in sectors that are more sensitive to the economic growth. Uh, interestingly enough, this is the first time this year that we began to observe some tangible slacks in demand. So it's very visible in the U.S. gasoline numbers. Uh, for example, uh, realized gasoline demand in the U.S. was outperforming our expectations all the way from June, uh, all the way through June by about 100 kBD. July, our number was about 300 kBD lower than what we, uh, I'm sorry, higher than what we realized, and August was 400 kBD higher than realized numbers. We have six airlines in the United States that issued profit warnings, and all of them said that domestic demand is uh, is softening, so that the bookings they're observing uh, for forward travel it has been softer than expectations. Interestingly enough, that this is across airlines, which are budget airlines, but also non-budget airlines. So it's, you know, but again, you know, jet fuel prices are up 50% since uh, since May. So this is now feeding through the numbers. Um, so overall, we just, yes, we do believe that demand uh, in the fourth quarter is not going to be as strong as people are expecting. And uh, still we have, we have, supply outside of the OPEC uh, alliance, some core non-OPEC members that they're producing. So in general, we believe that uh, the balances will be not as tight as they were in the third quarter. So hence, we're sticking with $86, which again, I don't think it's a bearish price forecast. It's it's not 120 for sure, but by all means, I think $86 in historical context, it's a good, good price for everybody. Okay. Okay. That that doesn't sound too onerous, I guess, um, Joe. So when we think about this baseline that Natasha has, it you know it feels like 
we could be getting back down to 86 and the impact of the oil shock could fade pretty quickly, right? So what's your sense of putting everything together that Natasha has told us, right? This is predominantly a supply shock, right? In terms of the shares, I think we've said it's roughly one quarter demand and three quarters supply shock. What would be the impact on, on growth and inflation from these sort of numbers, assuming that we, it kind of fades and we get back down to 86? Yeah, I think the the, the first impact uh, will be the inflation impact. And re regardless of the source, so oil prices are up, that's going to feed through into headline inflation. And we probably feel like that probably will be adding maybe about two percentage points, one to two percentage points annualized to global headline inflation in the you know, the two quarters here, maybe second half of the year, kind of spread out over that that period. Um, but then the, the the growth hit is is important. And that's where all of these aspects that I talked about up front and Natasha is kind of parsing that into roughly about one fourth demand, three fourths supply. Um, uh, you know, if we were to assume that breakdown, um, the demand shock, of, of course, um, you know, pushes up prices uh, to some extent, one fourth of the move. Uh, that is tempered a little bit because higher prices lead to some demand destruction, but it's still demand is up, right? So it's had, that's actually a positive for the outlook. We're feeling better about growth. And I would emphasize, um, you know, Natasha said growth is disappointed. I, I think more recently it has, but when you step back, you know, growth this year is, is a lot better. There are a lot of people who thought Europe was going to be in recession, including us. The reopening in China was a lot stronger and certainly the normalization in services. And that includes jet fuel demand. All of that, I would say, has been stronger than expected, which is why we're seeing some of these oil price moves that we are seeing. And that is consistent with, hey, maybe this demand shock is a little bit more than we thought. The supply is the one we worry about, the three-fourths of the move supply shock. That's just an outright drag. We would estimate that that move probably takes off about a percentage point um, annualized in the uh, over the kind of a two-quarter period here. We can call it the second half if you want. You can call it kind of midway through the third quarter into early part of first quarter if you want, but over the six-month stretch. Um, so you got a little bit of extra demand of about a half a point. You got a bigger drag of about, maybe about a full percentage point. These are annualized numbers over two quarters. That leaves you about a half a percentage point down. So bottom line it for everyone, I would say the oil price move when you parsed everything out uh, is going to be about a half a percentage point annualized drag over two quarters, however you want to spread so, those two Okay, so out. instead of instead of our baseline of, what is it, 2.3% growth we have for the second half globally? Yeah, correct. Instead of that, we end up with 1.8? Is that how yeah, you that would Yeah, that would it? probably be, that would be about right. And there is mm -hmm. this question of, you know, some of our economists may push back and say, hey, I've already embedded some of this shock in there. Uh, so I, I was, I was, you're good to hold my feet to the fire, Nora, on this, because uh, I think it's really what we should care about. I'm being a little vague because I don't know how much our economists have baked this in there. But yes, if you felt like we're, we have a 2.3% annualized forecast global GDP growth for the second half of this year, if you feel like no one has embedded this price move and it's parsed the way I just parsed it and Natasha helped us do, that would mean 1.8 percentage points annualized growth, which is, I mean, that's that's a bit on the softer side. Now we do have momentum slowing here. I mean, growth is stepping down as we move into the fourth quarter. I would argue maybe some of that is in there. And we should recognize we already have August consumer spending data, which was weak. 
So if people are marking to market some of that weakness in response to the jump in inflation that you mm -hmm. had in August, then that might be in there as well. Uh, I do take comfort in Natasha telling me that she thinks that a lot of that kind of the partly some of the demand destruction, a lot of the bullish uh, elements already discounted in the prices and behind us and prices are going to either stabilize or move back down. Um, you know, that's that will be welcome. In fact, the inflation implications on a three month run rate, inflation's already peaked in August, September. Yeah. It's going to be stepping down if oil just stabilizes here. So that'll be welcome news as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, Joe, if you if you had to give levels of Brent crude where you would really get concerned about the impact on global growth, right, to the point where it would push the global economy into a stall or a recession, what sort of levels on oil prices would we you, need to get the outcome? Yeah, I mean, you you actually posed a little bit of this to to Natasha, and we're talking about some of these calls of a hundred and twenty dollars per barrel in the in the note and the listeners should know that we're, we're kind of talking off a research note that uh, Bruce and I put out earlier this week. Uh, this is where all this stuff is coming from. Um, we, we explore what $120 per barrel would do. Uh, and if I run that through the same model, and if I assume it's all a supply shock, um, you know, which would be the ultimate hit to growth, that would take off about one and a quarter percentage points from growth. So for an economy that we think is already maybe running one eight, we take another one and a quarter off that, boy, you're getting pretty close to a stall uh, in the global expansion. So maybe not completely break it, but um, at that point, I would get very concerned and worry about some of the, the these these uh, contributing factors, maybe mm. sentiment starts to, to swirl downward and that reinforces the uh, kind of a earlier recession than certainly we're looking for, which we now have a soft landing in our kind of global outlook. And so that would be um, short circuited. Yeah. Now we, you talked about the impact of uh, the move up in oil prices on headline inflation, right? Um, yep. And where, as you said, we're seeing that already in the in the August data. I can see globally headline inflation. We're tracking up to well, four point seven percent annualized from three, so quite a big jump here. And the energy CPI is the momentum in it has swung from negative to positive double digits now. So that's a pretty big swing. But how about the impact on core inflation, right? A lot of central banks are focused on core here. Um, you know, should we expect much of an impact on core? I mean, to the extent that this is a supply shock, it, it hurts growth. Maybe that then suggests we shouldn't get much of an impact on upward pressure on core inflation. How are you thinking about that? Relationship? Yeah, I... I I, I think you're you're spot on the way you're 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 kind of thinking about it the right way. I would I would warn people to think about it because, you know, again, the the type of shock, why the prices are moving, are important here. If you're telling me the prices are up because of much stronger demand, well, that's a, a broader story. There's a reason central banks might hike into rising uh, oil prices uh, if they're driven by strong demand, which means a broader rising price environment that requires the central banks to put the brakes on. Um, and it's for this reason. I actually think there are a number of reports out there that I've seen and clients have put in front of me kind of saying, hey, look at this big pass through of oil prices mm. to core inflation. I mean, big's an overstatement, but maybe bigger than you would you would think. And people are getting concerned about this. But any of those historical relationships 
are really just reflecting the fact that for the most part, oil price moves are demand driven. Yeah. And in a world where you've got demand growth driving oil prices, well, demand growth is also driving core inflation. So yeah. I wouldn't take a positive correlation as a as a as a true causal uh, relationship uh, of a supply type shock. But bottom line here is I, we're kind of thinking the core inflation pass through is going to be pretty darn muted. And, and you nailed it by saying, hey, if this is a supply shock, shouldn't that actually be disinflationary? I think that will take time for that to work through. And, and um, you know, but, you know, for the most part, it's not something that we're worried about. The one wrinkle in all of this that would make me a little nervous is, is I kind of hinted at earlier, and that is that maybe central banks are feeling a little less flexible because we've gone through this past couple of years of elevated inflation and worrying about dislodging of inflation expectations. So even if it's not demand driven and driving a broad pricing or reflecting a broad pricing uh, lift, uh, it could start to impact expectations. And one thing you can point to if you want to be kind of a look out through the more negative lens here is that if you look at one year, one year inflation expectations, the, the longer inflation expectations are not being driven around by this five year, five year and that type of stuff. But one year, one year forward, which is still a forward rate, is starting to drift up in US and Europe. And maybe it's no surprise that uh, central banks, uh, you know, yesterday's Fed was a little bit more uh, on, the, on the hawkish side here. ECB, you know, arguably is still kind of has a, has a hawkish uh, skew to the way they're looking at the world. So, yeah. um, so it could be getting in there. I, yeah, I, I mean, go ahead. Yeah, as you say, I mean, I think also the concern is that the rise in oil prices is coming at a time where inflation hasn't fully returned to central bank targets, right? And inflation yes. has been, it's, it's, it's been coming down, but it's been pretty persistent. And yep. of course, the, the, if we get a further upside shock now, then that could influence price and wage setting, you know, in a number of countries, headline inflation is important for determining wage setting and so on. And that's something we've argued uh, in the past. So, um, you know, we're certainly not out of the woods yet as far as inflation is concerned. What I would say as mitigating factor, I'm not sure if we made the point already, is that in contrast to last year's uh, energy price shock, the current rise in crude oil has not been accompanied by a similar move up in natural gas prices That's and other right. commodity prices. And crucially, uh, for agriculture, commodity prices, food prices, yes, we have seen some pressure in Asia, but it's been quite concentrated. And broadly speaking, uh, agri-commodity prices have continued to come down. FAO food index is down like over 25%. And even in the last two months, it's been going down month on month. So much so for El Nino. Right. Well, let's see. Let's see. So far, not, not much impact from El Nino, as you say. So I suppose that's a bit of a mitigating factor. And Nora, can I ask you then on that? I mean, taking that into account, I mean, as you move outside the major developed central banks, you start to look to the EM. Traditionally, EM's maybe been a little bit more sensitive to headline inflation moves. Yeah. EM is also in the in the stages, early stages of starting their rate cutting cycles at this point. Uh, do you think about these energy price moves as maybe shifting the, or moving the needle on our, our central bank calls across the EM, even if we're not thinking it's influencing our major DM central banks? Look, so far, no. I, I don't think this move is enough to, to stop the EM easing cycles that have already started. Um, 
as I said, we are continuing to see progress on core inflation. So core inflation has continued to come down. Actually, in momentum terms, core inflation is back within target ranges in a couple of countries, including Brazil and parts of Central Eastern Europe. Um, and then the other point which I've made already is it's quite a narrowly based uh, increase in commodity prices is just oil and oil products, which, you know, don't have a huge share in EMCPI baskets. It's, you know, something like 5%, maybe 8% if you had a couple of other things. But I think as long as the rest of the CPI basket is still easing, so there's disinflation elsewhere, I don't think this um, move up in oil on its own is going to stop central banks from cutting that have already started cutting. Remember, the main motivation for these cuts is very high real rates, which is still true. It's still there as, a, as an important factor. I mean, look, if the move extends, if we start to get concerned that inflation expectations maybe are, are moving higher, and it's true that inflation expectations and much of EM are still kind of above um, targets, central bank targets, it could influence the pace of rate cuts or the timing of rate cuts. I don't think it's going to be something that alters the kind of terminal rate or the overall magnitude of easing that we have in our forecast, and it hasn't done so now yet. Um, where I think there has been a bit of um, impact has been in EM Asia, where the energy price rise has combined with a rise in food prices mm -hmm. as well. So it has had a more significant impact on headline inflation. But there we haven't really had um, rate cuts in our forecasts, at least policy right. rate cuts. So we didn't really have anything to change. I think only in India, we pushed back a little bit the first cut into early next year. But We've had those central banks on hold for, for, for a while and well into next year. Um, but we have seen those central banks responding with, you know, some tightening, stealth tightening in administrative measures, tightening of domestic liquidity conditions, pushing interbank rates uh, above the policy rates, some drawdown of FX reserves. So clearly there are concerns around the pickup in headline inflation and also some capital outflows that have been emerging in that region. But broadly speaking, for the EM easing cycles that are already started, I, I don't think this is going to kind of short circuit those those rate cuts. And we saw Brazil, for example, you know, they yep. continue to cut. Um, another point I should I should state up front is that the pass through from oil price increases into energy CPI and EM um, you know, is is a little bit slower. It's a little bit smaller than it is in DM, and that's partly because you know policymakers often put in place offsetting measures, you know, subsidies on energy prices, or they cut excise taxes. So we 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 actually haven't seen on the way down. We didn't see such a big drag from the energy CPN, and now on the way up, I think similarly we're not going to get such a big impact uh, as we have done in uh, in the DM. Okay. All right. So. Uh, I don't know. I guess we covered uh, most of the main points. Is there anything else uh, we should say, Joe or Natasha? <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot more we could say. On, on <laughs> Do we have another hour? <laughs> but, um, that might be. That might be. Bruce would say that. That's probably a good time to end. <laughs> there you go. And the, okay. end, end the podcast. So thank you to both of you for uh, joining me. Thank you to our listeners for tuning into the Global Data Pod, and we look forward to continuing the conversation on the next episode. Thank you.